This episode of Desert Island Dishes is brought to you in partnership with Kalinko. Kalinko is a homeware company all the way from sunny Burma. They work with small family workshops all over the country to make gorgeous things for your home. With the world feeling a little topsy-turvy at the moment, we're all in need of simple pleasures. And these are what Kalinko does best. They're the perfect place to find little home comforts to perk up your home and your mood, or to choose something for a friend in need of a pick-me-up. Head over to Kalinko.com to choose from gorgeous cushions, pretty planters, stunning recycled glassware, and all sorts of other goodies. Everything is handmade from natural materials by people in remote villages all over Burma. Kalinko works directly with their makers, and every time you buy something from them, they reorder a replacement straight away. This keeps money flowing into the pockets that really need it and talented people in skilled work. To help even more with that feel-good factor, they've given you a 15% off discount code to get you going. It's Desert Island Dishes, all one word, and the website is kalinko.com. That's K-A-L-I-N-K-O. Thank you, Kalinko. Hi, I'm Margie Nomura, and welcome to the Desert Island Dishes podcast. This is the podcast where every week I ask my guests to choose their seven Desert Island Dishes. These range from finding out about the dish that most reminds them of their childhood, the best dish they've ever eaten, and of course, the last dish they would choose to eat before being cast off to the desert island. Happy New Year! Not the start to the year that we all wished for, but I hope you're all very well nonetheless and keeping safe. This week on the podcast, I talked to Rook Mini, author of the Roasting Tin Cookbooks and one of the most successful cookery writers of all time. The story of how she got to where she is today is a good one and hopefully might serve as inspiration to anyone listening who is dreaming of writing a cookbook or pursuing a passion. Thank you so much for all your lovely messages about the new season. I'm really sorry that I haven't had a chance to reply to everyone, but I really do read all of them. And as always, thank you so much for all the very kind reviews you've been leaving. I feel very lucky to be going into the new year with such a wonderful community of listeners. So thank you. This week, I had a message from a lovely listener in New Zealand and also from a soldier stationed in Mali, which is just amazing to think of people listening all over the world. So hello to all of you. Enough of me. I hope you're sitting somewhere comfortable, preferably with a biscuit in hand. And here we go. My guest today is Rukmini Ayer. Rukmini is a former lawyer turned best-selling author of the Roasting Tin series, which have now sold over half a million copies. Amongst her army of followers who call themselves the Tin Lads, she counts Nigella Lawson as a fan, as well as other famous names from Jay Rayner to Judy Murray. The concept of the Roasting Tin books is deceptively simple. Rukmini's recipes lure people in with the idea of the one-pot supper, but people return time and time again because the recipes taste even better than the lack of washing up feels. As a pioneer of the, and I quote, put everything in a roasting tin and shove it in the oven school of cookery, Rukmini's fourth cookbook features tasty, no-fuss dishes from across the globe. As well as writing cookbooks, Rukmini styles and writes recipes for numerous brands and publications, including Waitrose, The Guardian, and Fortnum & Mason. Of her success and the reaction to the books, Rukmini says, It's one thing having fans who are like, well, this is great for dinner, but to have fans who are saying that you've changed the way they eat is very humbling. You never think that something like a cookbook could have that much effect on someone. Welcome, Rukmini. 
Thank you very much for having me on, Margie. Such a pleasure to have you on. Half a million books in three years. I mean, that's just amazing. Was that ever anything that you imagined when you first decided to write the first Roasting Tin book? Was it a goal? No, absolutely not. I I mean, I thought it was a good idea and there was a gap in the market for a sort of one tin book because I know, you know, one pop books, they, they used to be very popular. You could buy them at the supermarket checkout. But the thing with those, I always thought was that they weren't really one pot because you had to fry off some onions and you had to brown your meat and then you put it all back in the dish and then you put it in the oven later. So actually the hands-on time was quite high. And I'm not averse to hands-on time in the kitchen because I love I love cooking. But sometimes you just really just want to eat and spend very little time in the kitchen, but still eat something nice. And I really liked that when you do things in one tin, you are just chop, chuck, let the oven do the work. Yeah, I, I hope that people would like it when I did the first book, but I had no idea how much. No, and I mean, when you're writing a book, like, do you have a figure in mind for sort of, if I could sell <laughs> 5,000 copies, no. I'd be really happy? Or is no. it you know, nothing like that? <laughs> well, I was such a novice when I, I mean, I, I'd written cookbooks, sort of ghost-written cookbooks before for other publishers, but you just, it's more of a, a job, you know? Yeah you get a commission, you write the recipes, you hand them over. I'd go and do the styling as well, because that was part of the part of the deal. And I guess also maybe publishers could trust you to write recipes that look nice if they know that you're going to have to go on the sheet yes. and, and style them. Like, <laughs> do not give me 20 plates of brown. Um, but with the, the, the tin books, I just had no idea. I'd sort of get updates from the publisher going, oh, yeah, it's doing really well, doing really well. And I, I just had no idea what that meant. Do you think they had any idea? Obviously, they thought it was a great idea because they signed you and they published it. But do you think it has sort of surpassed everyone's wildest dreams? Yes, I think my editor, Rowan, maybe had an idea when she signed the book because she was very excited about it. But then to a certain extent, I think maybe publishers have to tell authors, like, oh, yes, we're very, very yeah. excited about your book, but it's going to sell two copies for us. Um, <laughs> but, but no, I mean, she was genuinely excited. And I think the reason that she thought that this was something else was I think at an early stage she shared the manuscript with colleagues at Vintage and with Penguin and she said the number of people who were just sort of cooking for it before pub oh wow was really extraordinary for a cookbook because obviously they publish a lot of fantastic cookbooks but she said you know people are wanting the recipes before we've even gone to press and that's really that's really unusual and so I think she had an idea that this was an unusual book. Yeah, that must be incredibly rare that they're wanting to do that. In the introduction, I mentioned that some of your famous fans, and I mean, being able to say that Nigella Lawson is a fan must be quite a pinch me occasion. Have you met the domestic goddess herself? I have met her a couple of times, once at a book signing where I totally fangirled (laughs) over her. And the other time I nearly banged into her with a glass of wine at the OFM Awards and both, both of those are excellent stories <laughs> thank you very much it was it was a very beautiful oh terribly sorry terribly sorry swerve we haven't got one on each other's frocks <laughs> um so but but really i don't know if i could count her as a fan she very kindly wrote a nice review of my book but oh, no she definitely counts as a fan she had know. you on cookbook corner uh, she did yes I, I was i was delighted but I, I think you know in that way where you can't you can't quite believe that someone's who you adore is being so nice about you. Yeah. I was like, maybe, maybe the publishers sort of twisted her arm yeah. and made her write it. <laughs> maybe or, she's or, been you know, paid and I don't know about yeah, it. Yeah, maybe they just, you know, like, you know, slipped her 20. And asked <laughs> <to write it. laughs> 
Nigella can do no wrong in our eyes, can she? Absolutely not. (laughs) So you grew up in Cambridgeshire with what you say was the best of three food cultures, Bengali, South Indian food from your parents' Indian heritage, along with classic 80s mac and cheese, sponge puddings and cheese and pineapple on sticks. So I'm (laughs) really interested to hear your first desert island dish. And that is the dish that most reminds you of your childhood. I would say that that is probably tomato soup with bread soldiers you know like white bread like not not really fancy bread buttered cut into soldiers Heinz tomato soup and I'm not going to say I was a a sickly child because I don't think I was very robust but you know when you're not feeling very well and you have the very rare day when you get to spend the day in bed and not go to school ah the best and the best days my mum would bring me that to eat up in bed or you know if you've had um gone to the dentist or something yeah so that that always just makes me think of sort of sitting up in my parents' bed because that was a treat. Being looked after and being brought tomato soup with bread soldiers with the crust cut off. Oh, yum. <laughs> also just, I don't know, it's hard to beat the Heinz tomato soup, isn't it? Obviously, it's really hard. delicious to make your own roasted tomato soup, but there's just something about the tinned tomato soup that's just so evocative of childhood. Absolutely. And I, I, I do love making roasted tomato soup, but I find as soon as you blend it, you know, it does go that sort of Heinz tomato soup colour. And, and I'm like, oh, this is almost as good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Could have opened a packet. <laughs> so let's go back to the beginning, because initially you studied law and you even did a training contract. So had you always thought growing up that you would become a lawyer? Yes, to an, to an extent, I, you know, I loved English literature and history and uh, Latin, rather embarrassingly, at school. And I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. But my dad took the precaution of sort of saying, well, look, why don't you just go and you know get some work experience like everyone does? And I did lots of fun things like um, shadowing barristers who are, who are terribly exciting and um, marshalling with judges, you know, when you sit up on a bench. Ooh. You just have to sit very quietly, obviously, because don't say anything. Um, and then, you, you you know, you get to go to the judges' um, rooms and um, have these lovely lunches. And Did you get to wear a wig? I did definitely try and a wig in someone's chambers. I think probably because they're all sort of, you know, quite ancient and there's a sort of a, a young person. Like, Can I try an old wig? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably a bit novel for them. Um, I do remember not knowing what to do about the grapes at lunch. What do you mean? So they were passing around, you know, it's quite a formal lunch. Yeah. And that's a little bit terrifying for 17 and a work experience. And I think I'd passed everything. I'd used all the right cutlery. And then they, they passed around teas and grapes. And... I later found out that you should have grape scissors instead of which oh. you're sort of, do I take one grape or do I struggle with a little bunch of five? <laughs> and you're there sort of wrestling with a little bunch of grapes with all these like elderly, very, very distinguished men just being like, she can't eat grapes. It's grapes like, flying everywhere. Yeah, grapes are just, yeah, grape carnage. Um, <laughs> so what was everyone else doing? I don't know. Maybe they were, I was the only lady, so they must have passed it to me first. Uh, uh, <laughs> just and you didn't know to say, where are the grapes? Where are the grapes? Excuse me. I think we'll find. Maybe it was a bit like in The Crown where it's all a test. I think um, maybe, yeah. Maybe it was. Basically, it. yeah. Um, it was. But So I think all of that made me think that law was quite glamorous and a bit like American television law, whereas actually it's not really. So as you can tell, I really recall most of my time in law, like via the food I ate. <laughs> But but actually becoming a lawyer and sort of doing the training contract, I mean, it's very hardcore. It's long hours and and to be crude about it, you know, being a lawyer is very well paid. What was the process like of of walking away from that? Because that must have felt very scary. No, well, I have to admit, you know, this wasn't actually as clear cut. I I did say, you know, I had this 
train contract, wonderful food at the firm and everything. But I spent those two years of law school, uh, the conversion course, cooking for my new law friends and having these elaborate dinner parties and sitting in lectures, writing down meal plans and even sketching out the platters and plates that I would use <laughs> and what I needed to get. And if I want to serve soup in little cups, so I have to go to Asda and buy some little cups. Um, student budget, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and um, I messed up one of my final exams by two marks and I got, got hauled into the city to this, you know, really very glass and steel firm. And they're like, what's going on? Like, you can't just an exam by two marks we, we expect academic brilliance at this firm uh, and i was just i just had no explanation other than platters I, well platters and i'd been you know almost as the exams were approaching i'd been thinking like, i i don't know what i want to do but i really don't want to work at this firm but i you know it was not deliberate and i was really gutted to, to be sort of told well, we won't ask for any of our money back that we paid for your law school with but we think another firm is better for you so i actually okay. ended up I ended up taking a little time out after law school. So let's pause there and talk about the second desert island dish. And that is the first dish you learned to cook. Oh, I know. I think that would have probably been flapjacks. It was either that or fairy cakes, but I think it would have been flapjacks because there's less cooking. Yeah. And how old might you have been? Oh, pretty young. Maybe like four or five. Oh, really? Um, my my mum, well, we, we love very, very pro-cooking household. No, doesn't sound right. We're a family who really likes food. Yeah. <laughs> and we had a, a load of fantastic books, sort of my mum's cookery books and specifically children's cookery books. So I don't know if it's one you had as well or if any listeners will know. It's it's a bright yellow book. I think it's called We Can Cook. Oh. And it was by Ladybird. And it had some slightly terrifying cartoons on the front. <laughs> you know, sort of like um very strange drawings of people like children cooking. And on the inside it was partly photographs, which was quite sweet, of people cooking, but then illustrations of the finished dishes. Oh, that sounds really nice. And it was really sweet. And uh, we've still got it. And a lot of it is crayoned over. So I imagine that we must have used it for crayoning practice, practice as children, but you can still see the recipes. And I definitely remember making the flapjack recipe from that book. And so even as a child, when you were cooking, like, did you just sort of fall in love with it immediately? I think I used to, yeah, I think I used to leaf through cookbooks at breakfast. Really? A lot, even as a kid. There's um, a Time Life patisserie book, which is a pink one. I like ones with, with step-by-step pictures. Yeah. Uh, even that now I'd be like, oh, step-by-step pictures more. But, you know, as, as a kid, I just loved watching how to make meringues. You know, yeah. and I guess it was the static version of YouTube. Well, yeah, <laughs> it it's magical. It was. So after making the decision to work in food, you eventually enrolled in the Edinburgh Newtown Cookery School. But the story goes, which is quite incredible, the day after you paid the deposit for the course, you got a call from the BBC saying that your application for MasterChef had been successful. So, I mean, talk about serendipity. Yeah, it was quite funny. I mean, I'd forgotten that I'd sent in an application form. It's, it must be standard that people are bored at work and send an application <laughs> forms to television shows. <laughs> Complete. I'd written this passionate essay about how I like, I hate my life and I love cooking. <laughs> uh, and yeah, my, my mum was so supportive. And I, I would say that really part of the reason for carrying on with law for so long and finishing the training contract and qualifying was a sort of like, well, at least you'll have the qualification. And my mum was very much like, look, if you just get the qualification, like I will help you if you're still really unhappy. And it came to the end of my training contract. And I was just like, oh, mum, I can't do this. Like, I really want to go to cookery school. And she was so kind in supporting me with that. 
And that that's kind of, I don't think I would have been brave enough to do it otherwise, like apart from financially, like you really kind of need some support, like emotional support. But I think that probably is good advice to finish what you're doing and get the actual qualification and then go and try and pursue your dreams, knowing that you have something to fall back on. Exactly. I think it was, it was a sensible thing to do. I mean, people did often ask in the years after, oh, would you ever go back to law? And I was like, I would literally rather sit my throat. <laughs> but knowing that you could. <laughs> knowing that you can. Um, theoretically. So tell us, what, how did it feel when you, like, how did you make the decision to actually, to go on MasterChef? I feel like I took a very academic approach to it in that I, I used to enjoy watching the programme, but I would always prefer to tune in for the last couple of episodes like w- watching people mess up on television i i find too embarrassing like I, I don't really like the office i don't like okay. cringing at the tv yeah but i would always tune in for the finals particularly because i just love watching people do such beautiful food so well and my actual favorite tv show is great british chefs my Ooh, dad and yes. I like watching it together it's yeah. such a great show really good show and i thought well I've got to think tactically here. Like my cooking knowledge isn't great. I haven't been to cookery school. I'm just a, a home cook. But if I want to sort of stand out in the early rounds, what's my, one of my tactics here? And I sort of obsessively watched Great British Chefs and took notes and started cooking sort of like Jason Atherton. And I mean, I'd already been cooking things like that because... I think repressed home cooks tend to go a bit overboard. Yeah. Sometimes like, oh, well, if I haven't used all the dishes in the house and 16 processes and recreated a Michelin starred meal for my friends, they'll never come around again. Yeah. Were you um, making a lot of foams? I didn't go as far as foam. <laughs> Although I had a conversation with my sister uh, before going on the programme about foams. And do you remember um, sparification? That oh, yes. Like a thing? Yes, yes. And I, I she, she's really into food television shows as well and I was like do I go in there like first couple of episodes like spherication and like phones and, and things and she's like do you know what it's so hard to get that right it would be better if you did something simpler and did it well and she was spot on I mean you also have to show a natural progression so I remember going on the show and the first few episodes I had these great British chef's ideas of how I wanted to serve things like I, I want a little plant pot to plant mini carrots and soil and oh, I wanted yes. this and that and I had all the props <laughs> and production were like no you can't use those because we need to show progression. Oh, that's interesting. You can't crack open this ridiculous presentation, episode one of the heats. Because that what you were planning for the opening episode? (laughs) My opening episode, I did this sort of dish, which was like, it was called Mr. McGregor's Garden or something. And it was a plant pot with stuff in it with olive soil and baby vegetables oh and then like, my goodness everyone else must have been looking at you thinking oh my goodness we do not stand a chance no um it actually was a bit of a disaster that one because i the, the rabbit so it had rabbit loin in it which is kind of a joke and then these beautiful little vegetables and, and the sauce but the sauce didn't quite work and it looked really pretty and off camera, I think John Trode said, if you're going to present things like that, it has to be perfect. Oh, like you, you can't muck around. So that one, I think, didn't get full marks. But then I made a chocolate and passion fruit bavoir, which is it's kind of like a, a cross between a mousse and a set custard. Mm-hmm. It's got a really lovely light texture. And I remember chatting to him about the amount of uh, gelatin. You have to set it with gelatin or agar agar. And he gave some really good advice, which is like the less gelatin you use, the better. Obviously, yeah. on a TV show, you need it to set in half an hour. But like the less you use, the, the nicer it's going to taste. And I remember practicing that dish and turning out like 
it's got a, a biscuit base, obviously, and then it's got a sort of a passion fruit curd layer, and then it's got this chocolate kind of um, creamy layer, and it all sets in a little mould. And the only reason I could get it to set was because of the cream content, because you probably know that gelatin does not, f- like if you try and freeze a jelly, you've, you've, you've mucked it up. You, yeah. you can't, but when it's got cream in it, that stabilizes. Okay. So I was able to flash it. these things. Yeah. I was able to flash them into the freezer just to set each layer so that I can unmold it. And it was, it was delicious. And it was obviously got, Greg Wallace enjoyed it because he likes pudding. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that was a good like first attempt. And then from there, I just went on with these really elaborate bloody dishes. <laughs> Which got me so far until I think when I we were the last seven in the competition and I just took my off the ball with something like a pheasant breast or partridge breast or something. And I wasn't used to the pans. You know, chefy pans are really heavy. Yeah, they're very different. So heavy and they take so long to heat up. And I just hadn't factored that into my timings when I practiced at home. I must have made that dish at home about 10 times. And I was almost sick of it, except for the adrenaline when you're cooking it. Yeah. And everything else in the dish was perfect. And then this bloody bit of fowl was undercooked. Oh. And I remember Tarot, like almost bursting into tears, saying, I love this so much, I'll eat it raw. Wow. And then the producer's stepping in and saying, she can't go any further. If really? she's undercooked something like that, this is too much and i just remember there being like back and forth oh and then having to stressful it was so weird and they had to come back and refilm that segment (gasps) with me so rather than saying look this is amazing and you've mucked up a bit that well if that was in a restaurant i would send that back oh my goodness my goodness this is like proper insider knowledge that it was so weird yeah so i mean it was it was interesting but i think i'm glad i stopped at that point because I'm not sure I had anything else up my sleeve. Okay. <laughs> it, was a, it was a good point to go out when you're like, well, I've probably reached the limits of my doing stuff. Yeah, but they didn't need to know that. They, <laughs> they didn't need they to know that. They missed out on a whole load of things you had up your sleeve. That they didn't know about. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I have so many questions about MasterChef. Like, it must be so strange. Are you aware all the time of the cameras or are you able to just forget about them and just focus on the cooking? It, it really depends what the cameras are doing because crew are lovely and they are so used to it and when they come up and you're doing something I found I quite enjoyed chatting to them even though that bit wouldn't make it on the show okay. like just to make it less weird that you're on a bench and you've got a man standing opposite you yeah. and you're in total silence while you're chopping so I'd say I'm going to put this in this dish and then I'm going to do this and the guy you know because they're people like they were like oh right and then what are you going to do <laughs> so I'd be having these lovely conversations with the crew and then I'd get screamed at from across the, usually by Greg Wallace being like, stop chatting to the crew, like, blah, blah. and then I'd get producers coming up to me saying, we're, we're so sorry, are you okay? I'm, like, I'm fine. Because I just thought it was normal to be screamed at by a host. Yeah. <laughs> so <I did. laughs> Whereas I think they were thinking, oh God, like bullying at work or something. And I was just like, oh no, like I just had no clue. So clueless. I, I think my, my main question about MasterChef is when you're presenting the food, how do they do it? Because sometimes if you're cooking fish, it needs to be served straight away. Otherwise it's going to carry on cooking and it's going to get overcooked. So how do you, how does it work? Is it cold? Is it hot when they eat it? Is it overcooked, but they pretend it's perfect as it was when you served it? Or how does that work? So it's contact based. So if you have got, um, you know, sometimes they have ex winners and extra judges and, and they're in a separate room yeah. and you show 
you show people sort of struggling through double doors. Oh, yes. Two yeah. plates of food to try and get them and then running back and getting a third. So then everything's even hot. Okay. So if you wanted to crack out a little ice cream or sorbet, that's the time to do it. It would be extremely foolish. And I've seen, you've seen it happen too many times to do an ice cream or something or foam or something that needs to sit. A souffle. A souffle. Yeah. If, <laughs> because if it's not when you're serving it to judges immediately, yes, the food's sitting around. They've got six benches to go around, five benches, four benches. You don't know what order they're going to go around in. The food has to be photographed for those stills. Okay. You know, that sort of panning shot. Like, yeah. Um, Rukmini has made a bubble of passion fruit with all the other stuff. That's like, a really good that, impression. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I, I, I wasn't at full capacity, but I can, I can do better. Um, so when they, when they pan across, that's got to be photographed at its peak. But often if you do see melty ice cream or something, you know, it's because they have had, you know, maybe six people did ice cream. Someone's going to have the melty ice cream. Yeah. In which case, yes. To answer your question, if the food isn't being served to live judges, as it were. Yeah. It's then cold. it is it is cold and often there's been lunch as well oh like crew lunch in between it depends what the timings are so if you've all finished, it could be sitting there for ages it could be sitting there for an hour <gasps> before the judges come back to eat it mm, that's very interesting so that yeah that definitely does have an impact on what you choose to cook once you know because you've gone on one episode and if you've you know passed your first episode then yes you you should definitely if anyone else is thinking about going on yeah definitely revise your plan of action based on knowing that but also in order to counter that they have been both of the judges are wandering around while you cook so they are tasting sauces they're watching how you cook things i remember check you, you know particularly john Road. he's such such a lovely man he is so interested in food and if you're interested in food he has so much time for you and he will wander around giving everyone tips he's just just so nice. I think I remember checking something like, oh, is this cooked now? Should I pass this sauce? And he's like, it's breakfast. You don't need to pass the sauce. <laughs> <laughs> so they are very much aware and they will come and have a spoon and have a taste of things as you're going. And they're pretty, you know, they're very experienced. So they know from watching you cook it, from tasting things hot as it goes along, to bear that in mind when they're tasting the dish cold. Okay, yeah, that, so I mean, that, that I guess they would, that's only fair. Yeah, they would they would never comment on what's oh, stone cold because like, yeah. obviously stone cold. But <laughs> yeah, I guess they are skewing based on what they know the dish to be. Right. Let's pause there and talk about the third desert island dish, and that is the best dish you've ever eaten. I would say, and I know that the way that food works with memory is that often the best dish you've ever eaten would be with someone special or with a family member or for a special occasion, but I think I'm going to be really, really objective here yeah. and say that the best dish I've ever eaten would be the peachy cacio e pepe from Padella. So if you have not tried it, peachy are uh, the kind of, I would call it wormy pasta. Mm, like really thick. Yeah. They're almost like when you, when you're making it from scratch, the instruction is roll your pasta into byros <laughs> almost <laughs> and then make them a bit thin, thinner thinner than byros and that is done in a really simple sauce which is just butter pecorino and a ton of black pepper and that's it and it's so simple and so delicious the the butter and the pecorino sort of blend into this white sauce and the pepper just gives it this incredible heat it's freshly, obviously freshly ground and 
the texture of the, the the wormy pasta noodles. I've been to Padella like quite a lot with quite a lot of people and I honestly don't remember any of the occasions apart from eating the pasta. <laughs> <laughs> and it's been so good that I've ordered it for dessert as oh, well. Oh my goodness, after having after my own heart, yes. And so when you were at cookery school, after so after you'd done MasterChef, you went back to cookery school, what did you think that you were going to do? Because I know that you went to work at Tom's Kitchen, Tom Kitchen's The Kitchen. Um, yes. But did you think that you wanted to end up working in a restaurant? No, I, even before MasterChef, I wanted to be a food stylist. Oh, okay. So you already knew that. Yeah. So when I was doing my sort of, uh, you know, working as a, a trainee and thinking about what I could do as a career in food, I had a feeling that while I was interested in restaurant chefing for it might teach me, I didn't want a career as a restaurant chef. Yeah. As I found out, it's physically grueling. Yeah. The hours are insane. You have to have so much energy. There is a reason that most of the boys in the kitchen when I worked there, they were all under 20. Yeah. Um, and they're all boys. Yeah. <laughs> and I have so much respect for women who work in that industry because it's oh, so hard. And I, I just thought for me, I, I enjoy having an evening and I enjoy having like a normal-ish working day. And I don't think it's sustainable to do a job where I have to get up at seven, have a split shift at between three and 3.30 and then come home at midnight and then start again. Yeah. Do you think for anyone wanting to pursue a career in food that even if they don't want to work in a restaurant, do you think you learn things in a restaurant that it's quite hard to learn anywhere else? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think it's essential to do work in a restaurant yeah. because you learn so much. I mean, you learn to be, I mean, I would say I'm still incredibly slow compared to a restaurant chef, but you just go in for, you know, a few months, a few weeks and you, you pick up things and you get quicker because you have to, Yeah. you know, watching the speed at which restaurant chefs cook and how they sort of, the way they work, it's so neat and tidy that you often go into a busy kitchen and you, you'd almost think nothing's happening yeah. because everyone's got their workstation pristine, doing one job, sort it out, tidy it away, do your next job. And I'd say it's almost essential education. And I also enjoyed doing it because it gave me a better appreciation like for, for going to restaurants as well. Although for a good while after working at the kitchen, if I was at a restaurant, I, you know, you hear the ticker tape going, and I was like, you've got, <laughs> you've got PTSD. <laughs> Basically, yeah. <laughs> but it was, it was great to, it was really great to do. And yes, I would recommend it. And I, for quite a few years, I would sort of go back to a restaurant kitchen as, as a stagiaire to do, I, I would think of it as top-up training. Yeah. So I went to Le Manoir a couple of years ago. Oh, amazing. Um, and did, a, did two weeks there. And you sort of come back buzzing with ideas and also just full of respect for the people who do it for their entire job. Yeah. Well, that's a good idea to keep going back and doing that. Well, we don't really have, uh, you know, our friends in sort of office jobs talk about CPD or continuous professional yeah. development. <laughs> I just feel there's not really the equivalent of that for freelancers. And it's really important because you're always learning. And if you can sort of beg the opportunity to go and work at your favourite restaurant. Well, yeah, completely. Let's pause there and talk about the fourth desert island dish. And that is, what is your favourite sandwich? Now, that's an interesting question because I'm actually quite anti-sandwich. Ah, tell me, tell me why. I just find them very dull. I don't know why. I, I just never get excited about a sandwich unless it's toasted. Okay. Well, that definitely counts in the sandwich um, criteria. <laughs> so um, I say a grilled cheese 
Yeah. You know, you do it properly in a pan. What did I do recently that I thought was particular? Oh, I put some coriander chutney in, which is really Ooh. good. In a, in a grilled cheese sandwich? Yeah. Yum. One side with coriander chutney, one side with the, like all cheese. And I love that there's a debate over whether you should butter the outside or not. Oh, I, there's only one answer to that, isn't there? Is that a yes? Yeah, <laughs> obviously. <laughs> when so, butter's involved, there's only one one answer. So there was, a re- there was a really cool article in the Times a few years back, which made me think about this more seriously, which is when you're using a really good sourdough, it's quite holy. They think if you put enough cheese on the inside, as the cheese melts, the fat should go through and then mm. sort of like melt on the outside of the sandwich. As if that it's may well be true, but it's <laughs> worth not help add more and <laughs> risk having it not do that. So yeah, <laughs> um, but if if it was a commercial sandwich, it's uh, the brie grape and cranberry from Marks and Spencer's. Ooh, I don't think I've ever had that one. I'm not sure if it's a seasonal one. Okay, or like so, it probably would be this time of year. But that is quite a good. There's, it's really generous with the brie. Ooh, it's a good sandwich. Okay, that's good. Mm. That's a good tip. <laughs> So the idea for the roasting tin came from a genuine need in your own life for that style of cooking. And you say that you couldn't find any books that fulfilled that particular need, which I guess is the best starting point for any business, isn't it? And for any book. Yes, I, you know, I've been working in food styling for a few years. Uh, as I said, I'd go through a few books and you always have that idea like, oh, it'd be lovely to write my own book. Yeah. But then you just think, well, what am I going to write it about? I mean, there's plenty of like young women who can cook. Like, what's my point of difference yeah I do remember going to a talk by Diana Henry where she kind of talked about this and talked about how you how she used to or she probably still does like brainstorm ideas for cookbooks sort of making mood boards and bouncing ideas off her friends and family and I I really like that research-based approach again yeah I'm gonna sound like I just a research nutter but well no but that's your legal background and that's obviously the the way your mind works well I I did have a, a law friend who got the roasting tin a few years back and the, the first book she's like Minnie I've never seen a book that was so obviously written by a lawyer oh. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay I think that's definitely a compliment I think because it's sort of very much like with the with the charts on what to put with what yes uh very sort of precise but yes I think if you if you've got an idea for a cookbook you definitely want to see if there's an either a niche in the markets I mean as we know the market get saturated with the same idea again and again and obviously it's easier for publishers to do something that's tried and tested but everyone is also after the next best idea so yeah if you've got something a bit unusual it's worth developing that and was it always in your mind was it always called the roasting tin because i think the name the name is so key and it's so simple but explanatory and a little bit different you know, what's in a name, but but do you think it would have been as successful if it, if it had a different name? I actually had a, uh, between us, I had a short list of names. It's not between us, it's our okay. podcast. Um, it's, <laughs> I had a short list of names and I had a couple of mentors in food, uh, one of whom is the designer for the books, Penny Parker, yeah. and the other is Tracy Smith, who is an editor at Fiden. And I sent both of them this, like, I love doing like an A4 list I was just talking to my publishers about this earlier, like with, with titles on. And I try to do it in a font that's similar to what it would look like on the book so I can see it as well as hear it. And one of them was um, oven to table, or <laughs> from the oven to the table. <laughs> and uh, we, we we decided not to go with that because we thought the roasting tin was a nicer title. <laughs> but there, there were a few and I liked the title, the roasting tin. And 
it was nice to have that confirmed sort of by my little tiny panel of people I trusted. Yeah, and because it has a different name in America, I think it's called Dinners in the Oven, isn't it? In America, it's called Dinners in the Oven. And um, actually, one of the reasons for that I went with my publisher in the UK, Penguin, was that another publisher who was very keen to do what they call co-editions, where it just comes out and it's exactly the same book, but you bring it out in different countries. They wanted to call it the Roasting Pan. Oh. Mm, I know, because in America they call them Roasting Pans. Yeah. But I was like, well, it's not going to make sense for a UK audience. And it sounds awful. It sounds like a bedpan. I mean, why would you call it like that? But the funny thing was, it was the same publishers in the US who picked it up. And then, you know, they said, you know what, we don't actually like Roasting Pan. I was like, yes, thank you. Dreadful title. Yeah. <laughs> and they <laughs> saw the light. I know. They thought Dinner's in the Oven was a sort of descriptive Where's dinner, honey? It's in the oven. <laughs> yeah, no, I like that. I think that's good. Um, and tell us, what, what was the time frame between having this amazing idea, writing the pitch? Because I think you you did literally just write to publishers, didn't you? And then, I did, And then actually yeah. holding the book in your hands, sort of what was the period of time that that took? Oh, you know, I can't, I'm not quite sure I remember now, but it was probably at least a year, if not longer, maybe okay. a year and a half, maybe two yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, I guess it must have taken me about a year to write it, and then including the time that for the pitching. And, and, and was it sort of a J.K. Rowling Harry Potter situation where you were sending it to lots of different people, or did you you sent it to one person and they loved it, and everything sort of went from there? How did that process happen? No, it was very targeted. I sent it to Square Peg at Vintage because I saw they had quite an interesting food list. And I later found out that they've got a very, very well-reputed food list, but I knew nothing at that point. Okay. <laughs> and I just saw that they didn't say anything about unsolicited admissions. Perfect. Because <laughs> I, like, <laughs> I didn't have an agent. And I had worked on Ruby Tando's cookbooks, and she's published by Vintage as well, by Chateau. And I got on well with the editor there. And my books aren't at all the kind of books that Chateau publishes. They publish Nigella, they publish very literary books. But I dropped the editor there a quick email with my pitch and proposal. And I said, look, I know this isn't right for your list. Do you think there's anyone in your building who might like it? (laughs) And she said, square peg. Send it to square peg. And I was like, okay, we'll send it to square peg. And in the way of anyone who's waiting for a job application or or an interview results or or a pitch. I didn't hear back from her for two months. Oh I mean, my God. <laughs> two months? No. Well, I mean, Did she I mean, even acknowledge your email or just nothing? Do you know what? I actually, this was on Tracy's advice. I didn't send an email. Oh. I sent a letter, a handwritten letter, fountain pen, very nice stationery. Amazing. With a, a CV and an outline of my idea, but not any of the graphics and not the actual proposal because the idea was very much to sort of get invited to a meeting to bring these things physically. Yep. Which obviously wasn't going to happen because publishers are very busy. So, but what I did get when I sort of sent wrote a follow, follow-up email was a, oh, thanks, yeah, I liked your idea. Can you send me the uh, PDF, please? Amazing. <laughs> and when she saw the PDF, then we got invited in for a meeting to discuss. Wow. Um, so you're one... Yeah, a hundred success rate in... Well, it, I guess maybe twice because I also sent it to Quadril, who I'd done some ghostwriting for. Okay. And they also said yes. <gasps> but they, you know, they were keen to call it the roasting pan and they did invite us in for a meeting. <laughs> this is amazing. <laughs> it was really You funny. must have known this is a good idea because that doesn't happen to everyone. No, and um, it was interesting and... 
I guess, helpful to have the two because I guess maybe both publishers took it a bit more seriously to know that someone else liked it in, in, that, in a classic sort of negotiating yeah. way where and really they came up with very similar offers and there was hardly anything in it really except the title. And I think the other thing was the photographer. So I was really keen to use for the Racing Tim books, um, David Loftus, who does yes. all of Jamie Oliver's photographs. Amazing. And I had met him when I was a little baby assistant and I was doing all the washing up in his thing. And he was just so kind and lovely to work with. Like he's a really important photographer. And I was just like this like little like, washing up fairy. And, um, <laughs> but he was always just very, you know, like you can imagine that people who work in the industry, some of them have got quite big personalities and, you know, you're not really going to pay any attention to the, the kid who's mopping the floors. Yeah. But he was just always so polite and kind and like offering to help. And, and I remember hearing him say to other people on a shoot that he'd just shot the corner shop cookbook and it or the little book of lunch oh, no yeah. he did, sorry he didn't he did not shoot the corner shop cookbook it was the little book of lunch and he liked doing little books as a sort of like giving back thing oh. as well as big you know major stars <laughs> yeah books. and I was like I'm a little person yeah <laughs> I'm going to bear that in mind <laughs> so again when I I didn't want to approach him before because it seems it would be a bit like I don't know writing to oh hi Meritus Tina can you can you just like shoot my you know my family portrait please <laughs> um so I waited until I had the, the two offers and then same I love pen and paper wrote him a letter like hi David I was that little assistant I've got these offers would you I know it's a tiny little bit would you mind dreadfully and I got a text from him the next day saying like yeah love to do it oh that's which amazing. was great and I hadn't told anyone that I was approaching him because I thought I would be laughed out of the industry so I didn't, didn't tell the publishers no, I didn't tell the publishers. I didn't tell anyone because I thought I'll, I'll look like such an ass if he's like, if he refuses. Yeah. And I'll, I'll look so presumptuous yeah. even asking. <laughs> the only person I told was my dad. And of course, my dad, I didn't tell my mum. And dad was like, well, well of course he'll. Why would he say no to my darling girl? And I was like, come on, dad, don't be silly. And and, he, and of course, you know, what I told dad, David said, yeah, well, of course he said yes. <laughs> Thank, thanks, dad. That for is your, such a dad response. It's such it? a dad response. It was so sweet. Um, and, and then, yeah, and then it looked really, so then I went to the publishers and said, oh, by the way, I've got David Loftus on board. And both of them were like, what? How? <laughs> Why? I mean, and you by know, the way, by the way, Mario Testino <laughs> wants to shoot my cookbook. Uh, He's going to do my cover shoot. So. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and yeah, Square Peg were like, okay, great, fantastic. We've worked with him before. We love him. And obviously, Quadril have also worked with them and love him, but they were very much like, well, we're not sure he's right for this book, like budget wise, blah, 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 blah. And I was like, no, he comes as part of the package or. Wow. So you really knew what you wanted and it all just came together. That's amazing. I, I think I remember being in the loose at Le Manoir while these negotiations were happening. So I was supposed to be working in the kitchen and instead I was on the phone. Oh, okay. In a staff loo, <laughs> like talking to one publisher. Like me and, and David other. are nothing at all. Yeah, basically that. <laughs> <laughs> and can you up the designer's fee? And like, <laughs> you just want it to be as good as you can because you feel like you've got one shot of doing it yeah, so of course it's worth pushing and it turned out i think his photographs have really made the book and working with penny her designers really made the books so yeah i'd say just as a lay person it's turned out okay Brooke. <laughs> That's what i would say <laughs> thank you and that was not not as a result of sort of like face of negotiation at all <laughs> let's talk about the fifth desert island dish and that's a dish you eat the most often that would probably be Carbonara, yes. I think that is my most eaten dish at home. Yeah. And do you I, have a particular method for your carbonara? 
It's similar to Nigella's, but it's maybe I don't put in, I think she says to use one, two egg yolks or something. And I probably just put in a whole egg. Or, okay. Um, but otherwise it's very, very much like Nigella's yeah. recipe. And I don't think I put any wine in. I think she puts vermouth in. Oh, does she? I think she, after she's frizzled the bacon, I think she deglazes the pan. Okay. With a splash of white vermouth masala, you know, all of the Nigella things. I'm not sure which one, um, but I, I usually don't do that. But I, you, you know, back when we used to be able to go to the theatre and the opera and that, I would come back and sort of at 11 o'clock at night, just knock out a pan of carbonara as well, oh. take it to bed with me. It was so nice. Oh, nothing better. Hopefully, nice. hopefully one day soon. Yes. So Great book, post theatre. Yes. Book four, The Roasting Pin Around the World. It, it came at admittedly quite a difficult moment for all authors publishing books. But actually, for this particular book, I think this year was kind of perfect for it to come out because we were all stuck at home, unable to travel the world. And instead, the idea of being able to travel via your kitchen is quite a gift that you gave everyone. I mean, I didn't think so at the time, just before pub, or, you know, with the, the book coming out. I was like, how can you bring out a book about global cooking during a global pandemic? Yeah. This is just <laughs> a dreadful idea. This is going to tank. And I, I was just prepared for it. I, I just felt like it was almost like a slap in the face because no one could travel. And then my publishers were like, no, it's great because people want to travel. They can travel through your book. And I yeah. was like, this is, this is a stretch, guys. Come on, come on. <laughs> <laughs> but actually, uh, they were right. And I was completely wrong, which was <laughs> just great. <laughs> I don't think the tin lads were ever going to let it tank. I mean... It's just so it's so nice that people like things that you do, as you know, because you've got a very successful podcast. It's, it just feels nice to, yeah, when, when people like your work and they tell you about it. So I was I was kind of delighted that it had a good reception. Of course, and and the research for this particular book sounds pretty heavenly with trips to Singapore, America, and Sri Lanka. You say yourself, um, you describe yourself as being a really irritating traveller. <laughs> what do you mean by that? So back before we had lots of responsibilities and when you you know when you go on holiday with your friends like a student trip and you go past sort of six or seven cafes and everyone's getting increasingly hungry I mean I'd either be the sort of person who's like guys I'm starving we're going to the first cafe or if my hunger levels aren't quite the same as everyone else's you know everyone's more hungry but I'm like what about that one over there what about no I think that one's got and I was like we're going to kill you if we don't eat right now (laughs) and same on family holidays um sort of any opportunity to go to an interesting restaurant doesn't have to be a fancy restaurant just somewhere that does particularly good tacos or like particularly good shrimp and grits or I would think that eating somewhere you know, like at a chain was uh, maybe like a waste, a waste, of, yeah. a waste of a meal. Well, especially when you're traveling, you only have a finite number of, I mean, meals and snacks and second meals, of course, but, but there's only so much food you can eat in a day. So yeah, I, that does kind of all have to be thought out. So the sixth desert island dish is a bit of a cruel question at the moment because it's all about your go-to dinner party dish. Oh. Obviously not doing that much of at the moment, but I, in happier times, what would be your go-to dinner party dish? My favourite part of a dinner party is, well, it shouldn't be because you've got to still get everything else out. I love canapes. Mm. I, I would just quite happily eat canapes all day. And, and what would be your sort of go-to ones? The ones I always do for dinner parties, so my friends are probably sick of them, are so the little, it's my friend Charlotte's recipe actually, um, the little rounds of toast and then you put on um, a little bit of nice goat's cheese, yeah, a fig slice, 
bit of honey and some fresh pesto and you just blast it under the oven and it's so nice because you've got that lovely combination with the creaminess and sharpness of the goat cheese sweetness of the fig you've got the herbs from the dressing and then the crunch from the little you know little round of toast or whatever you put it on i just i love it and it's just so quick you can always get figs at christmas there's usually some goat cheese i I do use sort of fresh bought pesto rather than make my own for that yeah and it's so nice that sounds delicious (laughs) um so but as a dinner party dish I'm quite into doing burratas nowadays, or I was before yeah. all this happened, because you can get a nice burrata at the, at the supermarket and make a really interesting sort of salad-y thing. So maybe like a, a warm salad of, sort of tomatoes and coriander seeds, plonk your burrata in the middle, like dust it with something crunchy like pine nuts or something. You know, I think it can be really simple and really nice. Yeah, that sounds delicious. And would you do a pudding? Yes, I like doing puddings. Um it's always Nigella's chocolate raspberry cake, or Ooh. it has been for years. Is that a really good one? It's amazing. I think it's in uh, How to Eat. Okay. And my friends and I started making it at university, and I think it, for a few years, you know, like, we must make something else for pudding. <laughs> but it, I think it's time for it to come back, back into Vogue. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I feel like we always feel pressured to do something different, but if you make it new, something, yeah. You keep, yeah. you keep with what you know. Roast chicken, chocolate pudding. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so on Desert Island Dishes, we also have a cookbook corner. So I'd like to know, what is your most treasured cookbook? Well, I think treasured would probably be that patisserie book by Time Life. Yes. Um, and I can send you a picture of it if you like. Oh, yes, um, please. It's, it's such a beautiful book. And I think because it has so much memory attached to it for me, from you know, from being a kid and, and cooking from it. Yeah, that's, that's probably, the, and my mum gave it to me, so... That's probably the book I chose. Yes, doubly as special. Right. I can't believe it, but we're on to the final seventh desert island dish. And that is the last dish you would choose to eat before being cast off to the desert island. Okay. So that would be uh, cooked by my mum. Yes. And that would be what I request every year for my birthday. So she is an amazing cook, but I request exactly the same thing every year, which is to start with um, pakoras. So um, cauliflower and um, potato are my favourite, but particularly cauliflower pakoras, they're really good. Uh, then something called chop, which I don't know if you've heard of. It's, it's an Anglo-Indian dish or an, like a sort of Bengali dish. So you know how the, like the British had their base in, in Calcutta during, um, uh, well, colonisation, yeah. as it were. But as a, as one of the plus points of that was these amazing hybrid dishes that got made. So it's a bit like a rissole but it's also a bit like a, an Indian um, potato cake. Oh. So you've got um, mashed potato and you stuff it. You could either stuff it with meat or because I was a, a kid and mum was putting some sort of um, maybe like curry jackfruit in it. I was like, mum, can you put cheddar cheese in it? And she was like, yes, yes, I could. <laughs> so block of cheddar cheese wrapped in mashed potato, deep um, crumbed, you know, like yeah. egg, egg crumbs, everything deep fried. And it's about the size of like a, if you think of a flattened Scotch egg. Oh, nice ground. That sounds amazing. It's amazing. And, <laughs> you know, so should I, should I put some spice in it? No, just the cheese <laughs> and the potato. And it's so good. So those are my starters. Okay. Uh, and then for the main course, I always ask for um, her pulao rice, which is amazing. It's got cashew nuts in it. You know, your classic whole garam masala, which is black cardamom, cinnamon sticks, cloves, and uh, a bay leaf. And then you sort of fry off your rice with that, with buttery cashew nuts, and you put some more ground spices in, a bit of salt, 
It's so nice. That like, sounds amazing. If if I want comfort food, I make that. But now sometimes I'll have some broccoli on the side because it's green. Yeah. But um, <laughs> it's it's really nice. And then red kidney bean curry, which is we call it rajma. So it's a bit like a chickpea curry, but with red kidney beans. And I, I kind of prefer it. Uh, what else? Pineapple raita because I love pineapple. I mean, this is sounding like an incredible feast. It's really good. It's also, oh, and because I really like cauliflower, there's a really good Madda Jaffrey dish of, she calls it cauliflower cooked with cream and ginger. So it's basically cauliflower, cream, ginger, chilies, bit of garlic. It's so simple. Uh, but coriander to finish. Oh. It's amazing. I, I can't remember which book at first it's in. It might be what sort of all roast, vegetarian roasted together. No, it's not a roasted dish. Oh. It's um, it's like a, a in a sort of a pan. So okay. you, um, I can't remember how you. I think you just you cook it very gently down, like the cauliflower cooks in the cream. Amazing. But yeah, I, I never make it myself, but I should. Yeah, that's one to look up. And then, how are you going to round off this delicious feast? Are you having a pudding? Oh yes, it is. You can see the theme of this. It was cauliflower and pineapple. It would be my mum's pineapple upside down cake. Oh, such a classic. So good. So with glassy cherries that have to be red. Of course. Bright red. Rick Minnie, those were your desert island dishes. Thank you so much for letting us hear them. Thank you so much. It's been so nice talking to you. Thank you so much for listening. Interesting that a lot of people who don't like sandwiches are big fans of the cheese toasted sandwich. I need to have a look at the tally, but I would say that the cheese toasty is pretty high in the Desert Island Dishes League table of favorite sandwiches. Don't forget to go to the website desertislanddishes.co where you'll find a full list of episodes plus lots of recipes. And you can also sign up for the newsletter, which will be coming back soon. Come and say hi on Instagram at Desert Island Dishes and yeah, leave a review if you haven't already and you would like to, but obviously no pressure. <laughs> um, somebody got very cross with me recently for only asking for good reviews and I'm not really sure what to say to that other than I, I don't love reading horrible reviews. Anyway, thank you again to our sponsor Kalinko and thank you so much for listening. I will see you next week. Bye.